I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. We have a really lovely podcast for you today. We sat down with Scott Shute, the head of Mindfulness and Compassion Programs at LinkedIn. And you might be thinking, that's a strange title for an executive at LinkedIn. But what Scott teaches us in this episode is that creating a high-performing culture like there is at LinkedIn starts with having compassion and mindfulness. Scott has been an advocate for customers and employees in the technology space for over 20 years. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Full Body Yes, Change Your Work and World from the Inside Out and in 2020 received the Norman Vincent Peale Award for Positive Thinking from the Blanton Peale Institute. Scott's mission to change work from the inside out by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion has lent to his leadership style and allowed him to live in the intersection of the workplace and ancient wisdom practices. As an expert in the possibility of transformation and human potential, Scott is here to help us all shine our lights a little bit brighter, both in the workplace and out in the world. Please welcome Scott Shute. Well, Scott, we are so happy to have you on the Sakara Life podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So we like to start off every episode asking about your mission, your personal mission. What are you doing here on earth? And, and what's, your, what's your gift you're giving to all of us? Sure. So my mission at work I'll divide these in two things. My mission at work is to change work from the inside out by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. But there's actually a higher level mission behind that, which is to help people find their true nature. Mm. What does that mean? Yeah. What <laughs> is true nature? Tell us. <laughs> exactly. <That, laughs> What's the sound of one hand clapping? It's a little bit, uh, you know, it's, I think our true nature is that thing that's beyond the mind. It's beyond the emotion, beyond the personality. And the personality for me is mind, emotion, and body. So beyond the personality, there's our true nature. Now, we each have maybe different words for that. Um, I might call it soul. You might call it pure energy or whatever your construct for the world is. But that's what I mean. The truest form of yourself. So yeah. that's without the what ego. society puts into us. Yeah, exactly. our ego. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and how do we know when we've found it? Aha. Well, so <laughs> we know I wrote this book called The Full Body Yes. And so the full body yes to me is that feeling you get when everything just relaxes. Right? You, you ever like trying to figure something out, you know, and your mind is all anxious. That means probably you feel it in your body is all anxious. 
And then sometimes we just get to this point where we just know, mm-hmm. right? And we just relax. We just relax into it. And I think that's when we're operating from this other part of ourselves, this deepest, highest part of ourselves. When, when we're at that place, there's no anxiety or fear or any other emotion other than just relaxing into just being. Mm. Right. Really being in the present, yeah. in the moment, in your that's body. Right. That's right. And not being concerned about the future. I find that that's when I have the most anxiety is when I'm thinking about things that could potentially happen, that's which right. is kind of stupid in a way because they could also not happen. And I'm putting my body through this physical experience, adding stress and discomfort to my body when I I don't even know. Sure. If it's we're we're programmed this way, right? So anxiety is fear plus the future. So the future plus fear equals anxiety. And we're programmed this way. Like this is how we stayed alive. This is how we evolved as human beings, as homo sapiens. You know, we have these two little almond-shaped clusters in our brain called the amygdala, and they're always looking for danger physically, right? All those things that could kill us. And the the downside now is that we're triggered by all of the stuff in our lives. It used to be getting chased by a saber-toothed tiger. Now it's the neighbors making too much noise while we're on a Zoom call or an angry email from an ex or a customer or whatever. But in the same way that our bodies are triggered and we need to learn to whatever, have a practice to slow down, our minds work that way too. We're often thinking about the things that could go wrong because that's how we stayed alive, right? Or we're thinking about what's wrong in our life. So I call this pothole management. There can be a thousand miles of perfect road, but if there's one pothole, this is where our attention goes. And it could be what's going on with me and my, myself or my body. It could be in my relationship. It could be in my job. It could be anything. But this is where our minds get all stirred up about all the stuff that's wrong. And we end up spending 99% of our time on the 1% of our life that is not quite right. It's interesting to me that you call it full body, yes. In your Mm -hmm. mind, is this inclusive of mind, spirit? Or why body, yes, and not, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, (laughs) it's, It's what I think when we have the feeling it starts in the body, but it really does encompass all those other things that you mentioned. But it's a, it starts with this feeling of just like, oh, yeah, I totally know. There's, yeah. there's no question. I just know. And beyond just the physical body, which is where we sense it first, it is in the emotions and the mind as well when we just know. Right. It's almost like your body can't lie. So yeah, exactly. it's the best litmus test to figure out if you are full yes or yeah, totally. Full anxiety. Totally. Our bodies know. Actually, there's a quick little practice slash life hack that I do. You guys want to try it? It's like 90 seconds. Yeah, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's when I'm trying to make a decision between two things. So actually you guys do it too and the listeners too. Think of you have to decide between A and B. And it could be as simple as what you want to have for lunch, but it's more powerful if you pick something really important that your mind hasn't figured out, like relationship stuff or job stuff or whatever. All right. So you guys have an A and a B. Is it okay if it's like A through M? (laughs) (laughs) We may not have time for all of that. Okay, got it. (laughs) If you could pick between, I'll narrow it down. Pick between two things, A and B. Just just for today. You can try it. You can extend later. Okay? So close your eyes for a second and take a deep breath in and out. All right. Now think of A. You've chosen A in your life. And let it roll around 
in your mind and body. Like this is you. You are a person with A in your life. And just notice how it feels in your body. Perhaps fast forward in your mind a little bit. What are the implications of all the things that happen? But mostly, how does it feel in your body? Okay, now take a deep breath in and let it go. All right, we need a palate cleanser. So think about an orange rhinoceros for just a second. <laughs> All right, now take another deep breath in and out. And think of B. You've chosen B. You are a person with choice B in your life. And let that roll around inside of you. Let it fast forward in your mind, but really let it sink into your body. B, you are B. Just notice how it feels. Take another deep breath in. Let it go. Okay, we're done. We can come back. You can open your eyes. And before the mind gets involved, just notice which one felt better. Because here's, here's what happens sometimes is that like, let's say that mine was B, but then the mind will go, yeah, but what about blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh yeah, this is why we do this exercise, right? Because the body knows something that the mind hasn't quite figured out. And science has not quite caught up to the body brain, you know? And so there's something there that usually is good information for me as I'm making decisions. Yeah, we, we have friends who do kinesiology and use the body in that way, muscle testing things. Yeah. And I like this way to do it where you're using the visualization of an option to feel to, it's it's like when you're watching a movie your body doesn't know that you're watching a movie it actually feels like it's there yeah. and so this was the same type of experience for me that was really interesting yeah yeah it's hard not to let the mind get involved because what was interesting for me was my b was more i wasn't sure how i was going to feel but i so i actually uncovered the inverse which is that a really stresses me out. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. at least, at least B wasn't that it was more unknown. Like I wasn't sure how I was going to feel being that person in B, but at least I uncovered A right. is probably not the way to go. Interesting. Right. Yeah. And so can you walk us through what the full body yes is and high level, what you, the practices that sure. you walk through and, and how that ties. I have so many questions about the workplace, et cetera. And so, and like why you chose sure. the workplace. So how it ties into the workplace. Sure. Well, you know, maybe I'll start at the workplace just to give some context for what is happening. So my, my role is that I'm head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn. But before that, I was a VP of global customer operations. I led all the customer facing stuff that's not sales. It was this team of like a thousand people, right? So I've had a career as an executive. That's part of my life, but I'm kind of a dual agent in that I've had a practice, let's call it a spiritual practice, since I was 13. I've had a, a meditation and contemplative practice since then. I've been teaching since I was in college. It's been a huge part of my life outside of work. And I've never talked about it in the workplace until you know I got to LinkedIn. I've been at LinkedIn for about nine years. And I realized, wow, such an open place. Our CEO is talking about his own practice using Headspace. He's talking about compassion. And I was thinking, maybe this is a place where I can bring my own practice to work. And so I started, you know, after much time of trying to get over myself and my own ego and fear, 
I started by leading one meditation practice on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30 in the heavenly conference room, which I thought was quite auspicious. And the first time there was one dude there, <laughs> you know, just the two of us. Imagine kind of chairs facing each other, kind of knees to knees. It's like, oh man, I'm sure that dude was just as terrified as I was. And he didn't come back ever. <laughs> but, but the next week there were three and then there were five and then it became a regular thing. And then I raised my hand to be the executive sponsor of our mindfulness program, which we didn't really have one. So myself and a bunch of volunteers pulled one together. And then it kind of became my identity. People knew I did it. So I'd get invited to these bigger events. You know, the CFO would have a, a summit with three or 400 finance people, and I would kick it off with a meditation. And that just kept going and going. And it became my identity, which I think is really powerful when the, the full part of you, the all of you can be at work. That was really freeing for me. And for me, the tipping point was about three years ago, our CEO at the time, gave the commencement address at Wharton and talked about compassion. If you're going to be successful in life, be compassionate or successful at work, be compassionate. And then the next time he's on TV, this is all the reporters want to talk about. So I was thinking, okay, it's time. Like I'd been in my ops role for six years. I was ready to do something new. But also our CEO basically just told all of our 16,000 employees that compassion was the most important thing that they could do. What does that actually mean? And so I made a pitch to him and to our head of HR, and, and essentially we created this role with their great support of head of mindfulness and compassion program. So that's how I got started with this stuff in the workplace and happy to go from there. No, that's amazing. And, you know, mindfulness and meditation and all of these types of things are practices that we use at Sakara as well. And we have hired on, we, we had something like a hundred new people join Sakara this year so far. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. It's it's a lot and those are all people who are bringing their own mindset and their own culture to become part of our culture. And so when that happens, we think about how can we continue to have this culture of close connection, of openness, of mindfulness when bringing in lots of new people from all different types of backgrounds. And, sure. you know, talking to them, I, I think it is interesting. Not everybody is used to doing meditation to open up a team dashboard meeting or even in a, a smaller meeting. But it's something that once you start doing it, you feel the difference. And you, we notice the difference in our company, in our teams, and actually offer a once a week mindfulness session with Amanda, who's one of our podcast producers listening right now. Awesome. So definitely in favor of this type of practice in corporate environments. That's very cool how you've incorporated it. Well done. I'm curious. I, I can imagine that meditation is a part of it, but what else? Like, what does it sure. mean to have a compassionate and mindful sure. kind of personhood, but then also a culture? Sure. Well, let's break it up into two pieces. There's the mindfulness piece and then compassion. So mindfulness, we have meditation sessions all over the world. We have community drop-ins. We use a partner called Wise at Work from Wisdom Labs. We have an app every year. So people have access to the app. And every year we do a 30-day challenge using the app, right? And so that's a way for us to do something with each other and build community and also build good habits. So there's lots of things like that. And the idea is just to create a steady drip 
of these practices. So it's just as normal or mainstream as physical exercise. Because every company knows that physical exercise is great for the employees, which means it's going to be great for the company. But mindfulness is still on this journey of becoming mainstream. So that's the mindfulness side. On the compassion side, this is actually what I'm super excited about moving forward. And I think we have a lot of work to do here. Compassion is how we work together because mindfulness is about the development of self, but we don't work in isolation or live in isolation. We bump up against other people and we work with other people and we have customers and colleagues. So compassion is about how we work with each other. It's how we work with our colleagues, our employees, but it's also how we think about our customers. How do we sell to them? How do we build products for them? How do we service them? How do we take care of every aspect of our business? And that's harder. So I'll give you an example. In sales, our head of sales will stand in front of you know, thousands of salespeople every year at kickoff and say something to the effect of, hey, look, our job as salespeople is to provide long-term value for our customers. So don't sell something our customers don't need at the end of the quarter, just so you can hit your quota. What I can tell you is that's very different than the message I got as a 25-year-old salesperson when I was just starting out in my career. Or in product development, imagine a big company like LinkedIn, every week there's five or six or eight different product reviews where a product manager comes to the executives and says, hey, here's the next revision of the thing I'm working on and what's going to happen with it. It's kind of like Shark Tank without the attitude, <laughs> if you've seen Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. And so a product manager might say, hey, look, we're going to make these changes and the results will be, uh, you know, 23% more clicks or more engagement. And the first question always, unless they answer it themselves is, okay, well, that's great, but what's the member experience like? And if the answer is, oh, well, hey, um, did I mention it was 23% more engagement? <laughs> the meeting just stops, right? And then it becomes a discussion about our number one value, which is members first. And it builds this culture where those product managers, even if they've come from an outside place, you know, they've been indoctrinated in another company because we're hiring like crazy too. They come into our culture and it doesn't take them very long to figure out, oh, this member's first thing is serious, right? It's not just about how much time I can get the person to stay on the site or how many clicks I can get. It's literally about value. So these are ways we can build essentially compassion into the product, into the way we do things, how we can move from me to we, or just thinking about ourselves to thinking about the broader context of the world we live in. And do you think that this is something that every company can do? <laughs> can do, yes. Does. <laughs> it's an evolution, right? Uh, I think for some companies, it's harder than others. Some companies, especially if you're selling a commodity, especially if you're thinking about customers, like, wow, the customer's buying on price and delivery. So how do I act compassionately there? Because I need to be competitive. I think we can still have the root of these things in everything that we do, it's just harder for some companies, the way they're structured or the way they're set up. But that's not an excuse. There's always room to treat your employees beautifully, to treat each other beautifully. I think you'll always get better results when you do so. And if you have this ethos that you really are going to understand your customers better and really try to solve their problems, even if you're selling them a commodity, then in our relationships with our customers, I think things will go better. And it'll make everything else easier. And maybe you find that business decisions don't have to just be made on price and delivery. Yeah, I love what you're saying. And I 
you know, at Sakara, we have one of our values is is service. So to be in service to our Sakara lights, to our colleagues, to the planet. Yeah. And I know Whitney mentioned you know, we've we've had a, a a lot of new hires and in an era where everything's been on Zoom. So it's been particularly hard to think of ways to cultivate the kind of culture that we had and that we want and that where, you know, where else we want to spike within our culture. And what I hear you saying is there's so much personal responsibility in the whole. And I think it's so important whether, you know, you're just starting out your career or you're a CEO, like wherever you are, reminding people that they have so much control over their experience. And, you know, we don't have to broaden this to all of life, though we could, but certainly in the workplace, you know, how you show up is probably very similar to how the person next to you is going to show up. It's like we set examples for one another all day long. And I think coming out of the kind of work culture, you know, that, that my parents came out of and their parents came out of where it was like, you just went to work and, you know, you kept quiet and you did the work and you were grateful for a job, that that's changing. And there's some stretch marks and pain points in that shift. But I think one of the most beautiful things about the shift is it really puts the onus on me as the individual showing up. And if that's Cara, we always say, if you want something to change, you have to be the catalyst. You have to be the thing that goes and changes it. Like we can't, we can't change things for you. We can certainly be your partner and advocate and help and, and brainstorm, but. That's right. One of my favorite quotes is from Rumi. He says, um, yesterday I was clever and I tried to change the world, but today I'm wise and I'm working on changing myself. And I do, I do really believe that we can change the world. We can change our work. We can change anything about it from the inside out, right? It starts with us. And yes, there are situations that are completely out of our control, but everything between our ears is up to us. And then we show up in the world, like you were saying, it's even in our language, right? She really lit up when she was talking about, it's this light. If you think about it as light, how much are we shining this light? So whether we're a desk clerk who does the same thing over and over and over nine hours a day, or whether we have more control over our jobs, we can still be that light to those around us for everything that we do in interacting. So who do we want to be? How do we want the world to be starts with us. Mm-hmm. That is both powerful and feels like a lot of responsibility at the same time. <laughs> yes. And I think it's yes. often easier for people to say, well, I don't have control. These things happen to me. How do you start to shift that mindset? If you're mm. if you're feeling like it, you're in a place where you don't have control, you don't have power. Sure. I like this arc of development, right? We we all kind of start out in this belief that life is happening to me right? I'm kind of a victim. All this stuff is happening. I'm just reacting to it. But at some point we wake up and go, or we can choose to wake up and say, well, what if life is happening for me? And even if you don't believe the world works this way, like I believe like literally the world works this way, even if you don't believe that, what if we responded to life as if 
it were happening for me. This takes a lot of personal responsibility. So in other words, it's asking in any situation, whether it's good or whether it's hard, it's like, well, okay, what else is true? Like, what else am I learning from this? What if this were put in my path so that I could become stronger? Because sometimes we have the benefit of time, right? We can look back on a hard situation from when we were a teenager or when we were a child and go, that was hard. And I never would have chosen that if I had a choice. But I also became a better person because I went through that hard thing. And I don't want you to take away the things that I've learned. And when we start to recognize that this happens all the time, then we can start to make this challenging shift to gratitude for the things in our life. We can start to be grateful for the challenging things. Like this is black belt level gratitude, right? Like just think about it. What's the hardest thing in your life right now? And can you get to the point where you're not only just tolerant of it, but you're actually grateful for it mm. because of how it's teaching you and how it's growing. And, and here's the thing. I think when we get to that point where we have fully enveloped that as a life skill and as a belief system, then we transition away from that into life is happening through us. Not life is happening for us, life is happening through us. Because then we become a co-worker with all of life. Then we're shining our light brightly and everybody around us is influenced by that light. For a quick break. Today, I wanted to chat about our best selling metabolism super powder. I'm sure you've heard of it since you are a Sakara Light here listening to the Sakara Life podcast. Uh, it's garnered quite the cult following, and that's because it really works. This is one of my favorite products. It was formulated with powerful plant ingredients that help regulate blood sugar, control cravings, and lower body fat. Some of the signals for a slowing metabolism are low energy, uh, feeling bloated, like you maybe have slow digestion. Those are all signals that your metabolism is slowing down. So our Sakara Metabolism Super Powder helps to rev up your metabolism while supporting weight loss, mental clarity, and sustained energy. And it's easy and delicious to enjoy. It's made using high-quality cacao, so it's very chocolatey. I drink coffee, so for those of you that do, I highly suggest whipping it into your latte. But if you're a smoothie drinker, add it to a smoothie, or you can just add it to a chilled nut milk and enjoy. For a limited time, we're gifting you $15 off your first purchase of our best-selling metabolism super powder. Simply go to sakara.com forward slash MSP and at checkout, use the code PODCAST15. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com forward slash M-S-P and enter podcast 15 at checkout for $15 off your first purchase. Okay, now back to our chat. Can you talk to me about the kind of, well, one, how long have you been in this work at LinkedIn directly? And like, what have been some of the biggest shifts you've seen? Tell us some stories. I want to imagine it. Sure. So I was in my operations role for six years. I've been doing this role of mindfulness and compassion for three years. So a total of nine at LinkedIn. And even some while I was in my operations role, I was volunteering. So I've been, I've been transitioning, but three years fully. So 
and I'm a business guy. I try to measure ROI on these things, but I'm most impacted by the anecdotal evidence, by the stories I hear, right? So one young woman, still when I was in my operations role, saw me in the hallway walking with a friend and the friend is like, oh, you should tell Scott your story. I was a VP. I'm like five layers above her. She did not want to tell Scott her story, but she did because I got all excited. I'm like, yeah, tell me. She's like, okay, fine. She's like, look, I used to think this whole mindfulness stuff was just a bunch of BS, right? She said it in a more colorful way. But but you guys did this challenge, you know, a year ago. And I, I like a good challenge, right? The 30-day challenge. So I signed up for it and I did it and I liked it. And so now I'm on day 400 of my meditation streak. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's amazing. She's like, no, 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 that's not the good part. I'm like, oh, all right, cool. Well, what's up? It's like this morning... I presented at her group's all hands, which was like 80 or 100 people. I'm like, that's great. She's like, no, you don't understand. A year ago, I never, and I mean never, would have signed up to do that. Like, I would have freaked out. I'm too nervous. I'm too anxious. I'm too up in my head. I would have imploded. But this time, I've changed. And I signed up to do it. And even this morning, I was freaking out. But I went to a conference room, and I did my breathing, and I settled down. And then I went out there and I crushed it. And she was beaming. She was lit up. And her whole life had changed. Her career, the trajectory of her career had changed because she had been able to do these practices. So it's like that. Another a young mother reached out to me and said, hey, thank you for offering these practices. This is email. She's like, I'm screaming at my kids a lot less. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> She's during quarantine time. She's got two really little ones. And she ended it with, you know, a smiley face to let me know that she was kidding, but, you know, not kidding. <laughs> and she went on to say, look, I'm just a better version of myself. Yeah. I'm a much better mother. I'm a better partner. And I'm better at work. I'm much more focused. So thank you. These are beautiful. These are the types of changes. Yeah. It's beautiful. And I, I read, I can't remember if it was in your book or something else that I read about your book, but talking about that we think how we show up to work is like this other place. So we show up differently and how we show up at work is like, that's not life. Life is outside of work. And I love how you talk about actually, no, (laughs) it's all one life. We talk about that at Sakara too. It's like, how you show up out there is how you show up here and vice versa. And one of our other values is joy. Like I want every employee and myself to have a blast. I want to have so much fun doing this work. And sometimes it feels like, especially now at where we are as CEOs and this many people, sometimes it can really feel like pulling teeth. And I can empathize with that, right? Because sometimes when somebody is trying to help me do something I know is good for me. It's the last thing I want to do. It's like this inherent, no, I don't know. Maybe it's the two-year-old <laughs> right. in me or something like that. Right. So yeah, if I guess if people are feeling like, well, I don't know, mindfulness isn't for me or not that into it or don't want to participate or like, what are some tricks that I can do here at SCAR, anyone listening can do at their workplace to just start to foster this kind of personal responsibility and compassion. For sure. So mindfulness does not have to be about meditation. Mindfulness, I think about as a bridge word about awareness, 
who doesn't want more awareness? Who doesn't want to be more aware of themselves or the people around them, their partners? Like we just instinctively know that if we're more aware, things are going to go better. So how do we build that awareness or how do we have practices that help build a culture where we're, we're have that embedded? I mean, you mentioned starting off a meeting uh, and I would encourage everybody to start off a meeting in a super inclusive way. So it could just be a moment of silence. Like everybody, let's just put our phones down for 90 seconds. And if you want to breathe, if you want to meditate, but let's just be here because I know how it is. Like I'm addicted to my email. I'm addicted to my devices. Let's just be here. I mean, everybody can do that. And probably everybody sees the value. So finding language that's inclusive, I think, for the actual practice of just settling, of just breathing. But beyond the things that look like meditation, we can move into things like mindset and talk about, I think as leaders, it's incredibly important for us to talk about our own personal development, including our struggles, right? To be a little vulnerable with that, our mindset. And share the stories of how we've gotten it wrong. Oh, I totally thought blah, 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 blah. And this and this happened and it changed the way I think about things. Allowing ourselves to be vulnerable in that way creates an umbrella of safety for all of our employees, our coworkers, or everybody around us to say, oh, well, I can feel comfortable talking about my own development as well. Because I think there's this world where we're all perfect, right? We're all perfect on Instagram. We're all perfect on LinkedIn. We're not showing all the bad things, typically. But when we can allow ourselves to be more real, it allows for this conversation about mindset. And then we find out where people are struggling or where they've gotten it right and learn both ways from them. Well, you have a way of making it sound very easy. It is. (laughs) It should be. Easy and fun and natural. Yeah. I'm like curious, what does your day look like at work? (laughs) Um, the types of things I'm doing, I'm doing, uh, some speaking events internally, doing workshops, I'm writing, uh, I do some coaching and mentoring. I officially report into learning and development. So I do things that look like that. Mm. Uh, Yeah. And how would you define, this isn't about LinkedIn. I'm just curious in general, like how would you define the culture at LinkedIn and Yeah. And it's interesting because I've actually heard about LinkedIn's culture and that it's Uh one of top performance that people feel motivated. I actually, I have a good friend who he works for a a company where his founders all came from LinkedIn and Mm -hmm. they bring the culture from LinkedIn and it completely changed his life. He started Mm -hmm. waking up early to work out. He quit drinking. He, he changed his hair. He changed his clothes. He changed everything about himself. And he wanted to join this culture of positivity and performance and feeling like he was making progress in life, I think is how I would put it. Isn't that wild? You know, so when you move to, as an example, I've moved around the world and moved to a place where you quote, everybody is fit let's say. Like I moved to Boulder, Colorado for a while and everybody seemed like they were an Ironman. Or you moved to California and it's the weather's better. So everybody's working out. So you kind of just want to adapt to that thing, right? And so people, when they come to LinkedIn, first of all, we know they're high performers because it's hard to get in. We had something like, I don't know exactly the statistics, but something like three or 4,000 job openings one year and 1.2 or 3 million applicants for those three or 4,000 jobs. So I know that everybody here is like, at least on paper, a super high performer. 
But then there's this culture of wanting to do the right thing. Our mission and vision are very otherish centric. We're trying to be a force for good in the world. We're talking about compassionate leadership. And if you don't fit into that culture, like if you come in and you're a jerk, like it's, it's not going to work. So I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's a very senior person at LinkedIn about our culture a number of years ago. And he came from the consulting world. And he said, you know, at the consulting world, I'm sad to say I kind of acted like everybody else, right? And I found that I'm pretty malleable. And I came to LinkedIn and I wanted to be a better person. And now this person is like the cover boy for culture. And so it's amazing what a group of people can do when there's clarity right? The leadership team still has to over and over and over be consistent. Trust is consistency over time. And so we have that consistency of messaging, consistency of policies, consistency of how we treat each other. And that's how the culture lives, even as massive amounts of new people come in. Wow. That's inspiring to me. And I, I start to think yeah. about, yeah, how those practices start to come into place. And it really does start with the individual, right? And so if, what are some of the things that, how you communicate this to the team, these types of values or practices? Sure. Well, one of our values is act like an owner. There's always a lot behind this one thing. And act like an owner means act like you're part of it. You don't say, well, what happens at LinkedIn? You know, it's, the question is, what do we do? Mm -hmm. On day one, you start moving from, what do you guys do? To, no, no, you're part of it. So what do we do, right? You are part of it now. So acting like an owner means, hey, if you see a weed, pull it. Don't wait for somebody else to tell you. Be part of the solution. If you see something that doesn't look right, if you see a policy, if you see a practice that doesn't line up with what you've heard one of the executives say or what shows up on a poster about our values, say something. Act like an owner. And so I think it starts on day one with this kind of indoctrination to our culture that says, you're responsible. You didn't just join a company and now you're a cog in a machine. It's you. This is your company. You're just as responsible as anybody else who's been here for a long time. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing how, I don't know, all these things converge. It's not like you you know, have mindfulness over there, but, and then you have, need to learn separate skills to be a high achiever at work. And then you right. learn compassion right. with your kids, but then over at work, you have to learn hard Excel skills. And like, right. they're so intertwined and they actually intersect in this really beautiful way where, you know, when you were telling the story about, you don't have to be a jerk at work. It's like, well, for a long time, I think we actually thought that is what you had to be. Um, right. to get performance out of people. And I think, thank goodness, what we've learned is no, like that happy people do the best work. I know that I do my best work when I'm happy. Right. And so really like, how That's do we right. cultivate that happiness and joy? And when I think about it that way, there's no way I can do that for someone. They have to That's cultivate right. their own happiness and their own joy. And I guess it's our job as executives at a company to make sure we're providing opportunities for that and instilling values yeah. Um, yeah. that we can all we, live by. We model it through example. We set the expectations. We support along the way. And it's still up to the individual. But I'd love to get rid of this idea that Mondays are bad and Fridays are good, 
because they signify some change in our life, right? Because it doesn't have to be like that. If you, yeah, if you look at the history of work, in the really old days, there were kings and slaves, or there were landowners and serfs, and work did suck. You just did it to get by, or you did it to provide for your family. But now, in the information age, workers, we as employees, are the most valuable asset that a company has. Sometimes the only asset that a company has, right? So things have changed. Things have changed a lot. And what we know, there's tons of research now that shows that if you are a compassionate leader or you act as a compassionate company, in other words, you move away from command and control and fear, move away from just me, me, me thinking to we thinking and us thinking, you actually do better, especially in the information age. You're going to be a better leader. You're going to be more profitable as a company. And so then that hopefully translates down to the worker level that says, hey, it's safe. It's safe for you to be the full you at work, right? So when you interview here, you don't have to put your mask on, right? And be all buttoned up and be some fake person that you have to struggle and put energy into being. Like, please interview as yourself because we're going to figure it out sooner or later. <laughs> and, and also, if you don't vibe with the place that you interview, when you interview at yourself, you don't want to be there. Wait for the next one. There'll be another job that comes along where you can be yourself. Yeah. And it's also, I think, making the individual remember the power that they have as the individual. You know, I was just, we, our office has been pretty much closed through COVID. A few of us come, especially those of us with kids at home. (laughs) But today, I guess our wellness team who deals with clients and questions, et cetera, A lot of them traveled from all over the country to meet here today. And so I went over to talk to them and I was telling them stories about, you know, Whitney and I, when we started, that was what we did. We, I mean, we did every job, but we did that one. I think the longest, that was the last one that we really gave up. And that's because there is so much power in talking to the client. I mean, we can make the best product in the world. But if it's a day late because of FedEx and it's fresh food and like there's just things out of our hands. And so the next touch point is always going to be these people and the power that has. And when I think about if we all have bad days, but if inherently one of them is not happy at work or, you know, Mm -hmm. not cultivating joy, you know, how that not only represents Sakara to that client, what that represents to that person's colleagues. And then it just makes me feel not good because I want that person to be having a great time. So it just, what you're saying is just reminding me like how much power the individual has and that somehow somewhere in the work conversation, we've been taught to think that the individual has very little power, but it's actually the, the exact opposite. It has changed drastically in the information age. It has changed drastically. If you think of perhaps LinkedIn's place in the world, right? In the old days, you'd essentially put a sign on your door and said, help wanted. You know, whether that was literally on the door or in the classified ads or whatever. And now in the information age, because of LinkedIn, recruiters reach out to the people who they think will be great and pluck them from other companies. And so essentially then the worker has the power. In Silicon Valley, if you're an engineer or a product manager with some tech behind you, You can work wherever you want, almost. And that's really, really powerful. Where in the old days, we didn't have that. And so we're shifting then, we're shifting this mindset away from 
wow, if I have all the power or more power than I used to, what do I actually want? Am I really bought into this idea that Mondays suck and Fridays are great, that I come alive on the weekend and I just kind of get through the week? Like, why would I do that when I believe the work environment can be just as valid of a place for personal development, for spiritual development as a monastery or as my hobby or as the thing I want to go do? Why shouldn't it be just as fun? Now, of course, it's still work. There's still stuff that you have to do. But even starting down that path of trying to make it like that will immediately change our mindsets on how we interact with work. Do you think that that has to come from the workplace or that it comes from the individual, this spiritual development and whatnot at work? For sure, it comes from the individual. It can be supported by the workplace. So they both go hand in hand. If you want this and you go to work and it's dreary and everybody's a jerk and the work is bad, that's, wow, that's hard. That takes a lot of self-discipline. But if you go to work and there are people who are supporting you and talking about the same thing and encouraging it and having open dialogue about it, if leaders are sharing their own stories, then yeah, wow, you can really blossom. But in the same way, the leaders can be sharing their stories. And if the person doesn't believe it or buy into it, they are also not going to get anywhere. So it goes both ways. And it got me thinking what you're saying and and the power of the individual and cultivating this kind of culture and practices and environment. It's a lot of talk of how to make the individuals feel empowered, seen, heard, valued. I think there's also some work to be done in doing that work about your managers and the people above you and the executives. I find that if there are times where I feel like there's a lack of compassion toward me and my job, it's really hard to ask for it because it feels, I don't know, it can feel needy or like I'm feeling sorry for myself. But to remember that the people above you, there's a million reasons or maybe just one that they're there And they're just people too on their path and learning. And, you know, I'm certainly not a perfect CEO and I have lots to learn, but that I'm doing my best. And I think as as well as I'd like the idea of there's no such thing as an individual at the workplace and et cetera, I'd also, I'd like that to be squashed. I also really want the idea to be squashed that I should be doing everything perfectly, have all the answers and if something's wrong, I should have fixed it yesterday. For sure. I think, you know, what you said is that we're all people, right? And this is what compassion is all about. Compassion is not just, oh, I have compassion for homeless people or poor kids in another country. Yes. And everybody else, including, you know, my boss and including the CEO and including political figures I may or may not like. It means having compassion for everyone. Mm. And that starts with self-compassion. (laughs) sometimes that's the hardest thing. And so it helps when we feel whole and it helps when we feel strong inside. I love that compassion does not just mean towards something. It's compassion for everything and everyone. Yes. Well, I think that that's a beautiful thing to end on a beautiful note to have compassion for everyone, including yourself. Just really a great reminder. We'd love for you to share some light work 
with our Saqqara Light listeners? Sure. All right. How about just a quick practice? Yes. So, so try this at home. Just take a deep breath in, let it go, and put your hand on your heart. And first just feel the rise and fall of your hand on your heart as you arrived with yourself. And then you can say to yourself, your name followed by, I love you. So I would say, Scott, I love you. But you try it. And yes, for some of us, this feels strange. We have judgment about it. But just let that go. Let it go and continue saying it again and again. And say it as if you're saying it to the person you treasure most in life. But receive it from the person you might treasure most in life. And feel it in your whole body, this feeling, this feeling of golden light, really. It starts where your heart is and expands outward. And the more you feel it, the more that light grows within you the more you're able to share it with everyone else in your world. And then taking a deep breath in, letting it go, and just returning. And I love this as a meditation, but you can also do it as you're brushing your hair or brushing your teeth in the morning. Look at yourself in the mirror and start your day this way. And keep doing it until there's no judgment or shame or any other filter other than just pure, pure. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I felt all that golden light. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott, for all the work you're doing, not only at LinkedIn, but in the world and here with us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for everybody who's listening. And may you all go out and be ambassadors for compassion perfect i love this episode yeah it was beautiful (laughs) i feel personally inspired and my wheels are turning and yay yeah this is exactly the type of leadership we try to cultivate and inspire and breed at sakara and i think seeing that it can work in such a high performance big business like LinkedIn is inspiring and it's proof that this works. So thank you for leading that. Absolutely. And if I can be of further service, let me know. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great conversation. I feel like it reinforced a lot of the things you said it at the end with that we try and do here at Sakara. And one of the questions I actually forgot to ask was, I'm not talking gender here. I'm talking um, like yin and yang energy. Mm-hmm. And at Sakara, we have a lot of feminine energy here. We have a lot of feminine energy in our leaders. And so sometimes what's born out of that is like there's all this compassion work and emotions and feelings and cultivating and understanding and listening and 
you know, it's, it's the compassion. And I'm not always sure if that is what equals the most efficient workplace, even though we would never not do that because it's just in our core. And we believe that that's how you treat human beings versus I'd say a more masculine approach, which is like, I'm your boss. I need you to do this. Okay. Bye. And obviously I'm, I'm, these are two ends of the spectrum, but it was really interesting to hear that even in a culture that perhaps isn't spiking, maybe they're more balanced, that you can still lead with this kind of compassionate and mindful approach. It kind of put a stake in the ground for me of like, oh, all this work we're doing is the right work and does lead to happy, healthy, and high-performing companies. Individuals. Yeah, it makes me it makes me think again about just how powerful the individuals are in any business and that a company is a group of individuals working together toward a common goal. And so you want each person on that team or team members to be at their best. And I think for a long time people didn't think about the workplace as a place for true personal development. They thought about the workplace as career development. What are the skills that I need to learn in order to grow my career? Do I need to get better at Excel? Do I, you know, X, Y, Z. But as you scale up and you get to the point where you you and all of your peers have all of those basic, you know, your skill set, then how you really excel comes from you. How are Mm -hmm. you at managing situations? What is the energy that you bring? How do you inspire others and help the people around you shine their lights as bright as possible? How do you help them become the best that they can be? Because you know that if everybody on the team is their best, then you, you know, the company will be the best that it can be. And so ultimately then you're to further yourself in your career and, and find that success is working on those things in yourself that are likely the same things you need to work on in yourself at home. Yeah. I was going to say like, what's, what's the hardest thing to learn? It's learning to say, instead of, no, I, that person was mean, or this person is this, or that didn't happen. It's no, what can I do? What can I do differently? What can I learn? What's my lesson here? It's a really difficult shift, whether it's at work or in personal life. And then to be really humble in that ask and not also be thinking, okay, I'll change, but I also want (laughs) them to do something differently. Um, But to really, and, you know, not that other people in our lives and other things in our work lives, you know, don't also need to change, but to first and foremost ask, what can I do differently is an important practice for so much more beyond. Yeah, Yeah, I remember... In some of our early days, when we were starting Sakara, one of the challenges that we took on was asking people around us, what do you think we need to do differently? Or what, you know, your closest personal relationships, what are certain things that you see in me that you think hold me back from being my best? Because sometimes it is hard to not just see it in yourself, but accept that and yeah, we want to kind of defend some of those things, but those things keep us where we are and hold us in that place and hold us from moving forward. 
And so it's often the people that are the closest to us who see our patterns and our habits and our thought patterns. And so if you have the courage to ask, what do you think are some of those things? I'm going to ask you when we get off. (laughs) All right. Well, I will give you that information with compassion, Danielle. Okay. And love. (laughs) I can't wait for um, more people to hear this because I think if more and more businesses can function in this way and individuals, you know, it really, Mm -hmm. the change starts from both the company and the individual. I think like Scott was saying, you can change it from the inside out. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. <laughs>